The Planchet is a product of the American Numismatic Society. Become a member and support this podcast. Go to numismatics.org slash membership. That is numismatics with an S dot O-R-G slash membership to see options and prices. Gruppo nuovo, super setazione. Un demo fresco per i super setazioni, prodotto il 2 maggio del 1988. Il pezzo in questione è già Wank. Welcome back, everyone, to the next episode of the Planchet Podcast, the official podcast of the American Numismatic Society. I'm Andrew Reinhardt, the Director of Publications for the ANS, and my guest today is T. Corey Brennan, who's been a professor at the Department of Classics at Rutgers University for the past 22 years. Before joining Rutgers, he was on the faculty of Bryn Mawr College from 1990 to 2000. And from 2009 to 2012, Professor Brennan was the Andrew W. Mellon Professor in charge of the School of Classical Studies at the American Academy in Rome, where he earlier attended as the Rome Prize Fellow during the 1987-88 academic year. He's got degrees from the University of Pennsylvania, Oxford University, and Harvard University, where he earned his PhD in ancient Roman history. And throughout his time in higher education, he's also led a double life as a musician playing guitar for Bullet La Volta in Boston, Superfetazione in Rome, and on two records by the Lemonheads in the 1980s. And he's also a radio DJ. So welcome to the program, Corey. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Andrew. Yeah, delighted to have you. You, sir, have lived a life. First, congratulations on the publication of your upcoming book from Oxford University Press, uh, which is called The Fascus, A History of Ancient Rome's Most Dangerous Political Symbol. Uh, I was wondering if you could tell us why you decided to write the book and what kind of numismatic evidence that you used during your research. Oh, certainly. This is uh, an excellent question. Um, I was going to write, in fact, for the last 25 years, I've been writing a book on Roman Republican women. uh, And... um, it's taken all sorts of different forms. Whether we'll ever see the light of day, that's another question. But um, in the summer of 2017, uh, August of 2017, at the time of the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, uh, I was watching the news coverage and I saw at least two or three of these groups um, wearing regalia, these right-wing, uh, extreme right-wing groups wearing regalia that had the fasces or fasces on it. And in one case, it was really alarming because it wasn't just the Italian fascist fascists. It was the actual fascists of the um, uh, Republic of Salo, the um, uh, Nazi puppet government in, from 1943 to 1945 that Mussolini was the, put at the head of. So it was that emblem. And I was saying, this is this is unacceptable. And I decided to uh, pretty much from scratch. Uh, write a book on the history of this emblem and really, you know, sort of triggered by that uh, moment. And of course, you know, it was 15 times more work than one have thought. And also um, the work bridged the pandemic and with every library in the world being closed for, you know, 18 months, et cetera, et cetera. But the book exists and it's coming out um, in just a few weeks. And um, um, I'm interested to see what the reaction is. Right. Um, Now, for those listeners who don't know, can you describe what the emblem actually looks like? 
certainly. It's a bundle of sticks um, with a axe set in either the side or the top and bound with leather cords. And in essence, it was a mobile kit for punishment, for corporal and capital punishment. And its origins, I mean, it starts off with the old Etruscans um, and ancient traditions unanimous that it came from the Etruscans to the Romans. And the Romans seem to have used this emblem uh, as a marker of their chief um, uh, magistrates, first the kings, then the chief magistrates, for, for 1800 plus years. I mean, uh, from certainly the 6th century BC, uh, all the way through uh, the Roman Republic into the empire, and then in an attenuated form uh, into the Byzantine uh, Empire. And it the symbol takes on another twist in the early modern period, not so much the Renaissance. Um, Re Renaissance humanists knew perfectly well what the fasces were, and it finds its way into art, but it becomes um, conflated with another tradition, this Aesop fable about a bundle of sticks is stronger than um, a, any individual stick, and you can easily snap one stick, and however, if you bind them together, it's stronger. Well, in the early modern period, this became conflated with the fasces, and it was viewed as a symbol of unity as well. And uh, then it has a long history through the, uh, well, here in the United States and also revolutionary France, and um, but most notoriously in uh, Mussolini's Italy. And since it's this October is the 100th anniversary of the 1922 uh, March on Rome, which was the coup d'etat that put Mussolini and his fascist party at the head uh, of the state, well, it seemed like a apt time to uh, tell this story. Was it uh, was it happy accident with Oxford's uh, production schedule that it would be hitting at this date, or is this a conscious decision by the publisher? It was sort of a, a, a conflation of things. I think when I pitched the book, uh, I said, and oh, by the way, it's the 100th anniversary of Italian fascism that's coming up. And so um, as it turns out, comfortably, we I was able to fit the... the, the uh, uh, writing of the book and to, you know, to be uh, handed over last summer and will appear this summer. So it's a, um, I mean, sorry, this this fall. So it's actually, um, it's all uh, worked out. But you asked about the numismatic evidence and there's a lot of it. Yeah. And I should have, uh, I was telling the whole history of the fascists uh, uh, from beginning to end and I forgot to mention the coins. In the Roman Republic, you would, if the fascist is never used as the emblem of the Roman state, and you hardly ever, ever, ever see a freestanding fascist on um, a Roman coin. In the Roman Republic, sometimes you see the symbol. In the Roman Empire, it was studiously avoided. And basically, you don't, other than one somewhat inconsequential example, you don't have any examples from Augustus into the second century CE. And then there's an explosion for reasons I could explain. Um, but then... Uh, the way that I was able to, I mean, the the, the uh, symbol of the fascist is ubiquitous. And once you have, once it's pointed out, you start seeing it everywhere. Uh, and not just in the United States and France and uh, Italy and Great Britain, but Canada and Australia. And, and I mean, it's based in, in South and Central America and um, it just everywhere. And uh, so the, one of the ways to discipline this sort of massive amount of evidence is that I looked at the coins. The coins is something I felt I could control much more so than, say, public architecture or sculpture or, or, or the like. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I was, I'm curious as to uh, the iconography. You know, it, it, it's, it starts in antiquity, um, but, you know, 
do we see you know things in the modern era or in, in the contemporary area, specifically on on coins and metals, um, that uh, will still use this iconography today, or is this this really a taboo? You know, now it's in, now that we're in the twenty uh, first century. Well, it's largely disappeared. I mean, for example, the famous mercury dime that was introduced in nineteen sixteen is a good example. Uh, it's not mercury at all. It's a it's a liberty head of liberty with a wing cap, as numismatists will know. And there was a fasces uh, that was put on the reverse of this dime. And almost immediately at the onset of World War II, it made it through the 1930s, but around 1940, 1941, uh, there were demands to take the fasces off the back and off the reverse. And uh, uh, this finally took place with the Roosevelt uh, dime, where the fasces is sort of rationalized into a liberty torch. I mean, it really has some fasces-like elements, but still on the back of the, um, of the U.S. dime. And after 1945, hardly anyone is newly incorporating the fascists into their art. I mean, for example, French passports have a fascist uh, on them to this day, but basically that goes back to the revolution. But hardly anyone is instituting um, uh, new fascists, except there is a twinned sculpture of John Witherspoon, the cl- Scottish cleric and uh, early president of Princeton, uh, one's at University of the West of Scotland in Paisley, and the other one's in, on the campus of Princeton University. And that really conspicuously uses the fascists in its design. And this sculpture is dated to, to 2001 by Alexander Stoddard, uh, Scottish sculptor. And there's even a visual trick where if you stand in a perfect, sorry, in a particular space in front of this statue that the axe pops out. It's, it's oh, wow. you have to see it that you can't see the axe from the front, but basically from the side, you can, the axe is, the axe head is, it's a, it's a visual trick. Wow. Where, where on campus is this? Uh, right in front of the classics department. Um, no kidding. Okay. Yes. And it was, it, it looks like it's been put there, you know, in the year 1800. Uh, but it's um, actually, it's a new, uh, a sculpture, I mean, from um, this century. And it's the only example in the 21st century of a non-ironic use of the fascists in a public sculpture. Well, the interesting thing is that I use this as example in the book is that there's been many calls to actually, at, at the very least, contextualize the, the, uh, this statue because John Witherspoon um, uh, was a slave owner and uh, he, that there's no mention of this made on the statue base. And there's been calls even to take the statue down, the sculpture down. Uh, but no one, as far as I can tell, has mentioned that the fascist is the single most conspicuous aspect of this sculpture. I mean, and uh, I found one Instagram uh, user from a few years ago that pointed this out. But other than that, there's been really no discussion in the in the pages and pages of discussion once had about this. And I use this as an example to see how much the fascists has sort of slipped out of public consciousness. I mean, I'd say 10% of the people I meet, uh, and I say what my book's about, have any idea what the symbol is. And then I'll show it to them. They say, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So your, your published work, and, and it's, it's an impressive list of, of books and chapters and articles, and now uh, most of these uh, pieces concern themselves largely with Roman history, and I'm wondering how much use you get out of working with numismatic evidence, and what, uh, what do Roman Republican or Imperial coins tell you that you might not get from other primary sources? Yes. Um, no, this is, you know, I didn't, I'm not a trained numismatist. I never took the summer seminar um, at the ANS. Uh, uh, I never took really a course on numismatics, and so I'm, I'm and I don't do dialinks or you know any of the more technical aspects of of the uh, 
of the discipline. Uh, that said, uh, immediately in my earliest work, I found that I had to use Roman Republican coinage on a massive scale. I mean, uh, mostly it was the prosopography, the who's who um, of, I wrote my first book on a, a, a high-ranking Roman magistrate called the Praetor, and uh, which was not just about the Praetorship, the, the office, but also the individuals who held the office. And to figure out who these people were and their social rank, one really had to get into the numismatics. Um, my second book was on the Empress Sabina and uh, a, a biography. And it's about, I found out basically you can't write a biography. You can just write about her public image. There's really, as I say in the book, um, there's only 250 words from classical antiquity that have come down to us in literature about uh, Sabina, which you can read in 90 seconds. So you have to look at other forms of evidence. And I mostly look at the coins and especially provincial issues, which are the only, it's a painstaking study of, of hairstyles uh, and also the few places that actually date their coins and working on a chronology and that helps anchor the sculpture, et cetera. But essentially it's a coin book. I mean, basically, because that's what we have. We have the, um, uh, for the Empress Sabina, we have very few literary texts. Uh, we have a few important inscriptions, uh, uh, portrait sculptures, uh, but really it's the coins that um, uh, are revelatory. And I said for the fascist book, uh, the only way I could get a grip on this um, subject was to start with the coins. The coins are somewhat controllable, those that use um, the image from antiquity to the modern period. And it gave me a, at least hints where I, the most important countries, regions, time periods uh, for looking at this, um, this subject. Were, were you using for your for your coin sources? Were you going into things like Roman Republican coinage or, or Roman imperial coinage, um, or were you working with online sources, you know, coin archives or you know things from like the National Library of France? Um, what I what I uh, really use on a daily basis is acsearch.info, the auction list. Ah, yes. And yeah, yeah. Uh, I find that especially for modern. I mean, to, at, then I, I work backwards. I mean, I'll find what I want. Uh, from the auction lists and then go to the the standard sources. And um, um, it's, I find it, especially for classical reception, um, because it does world coins as well as um, uh, ancient coins, but uh, it's an incredible tool. And it's really how I got my, if, if I have a, a question about the ancient world, I'll start on acsearch.info and start looking around and, um, and then take it from there. With, uh, you know, with, with, your entry into you know studying you know ancient Roman history. It sounds like you, you came to coins you know a, a little bit later, which is which is great. And you know I did the same thing as an archaeologist. Uh, to me, you know coins were tools, um, and then I, I learned about them you know kind of in <laughs> in a backwards way. It's like no, they're not just for context. You know, there's other stuff going on here. Um, but I was curious as to how you found your way um, into ancient Rome, Roman history specifically. Um, you know. What were, what were some of the formative texts of your early career, or, or were you a kid and just you know, reading about mythology and then found your way in? Yeah, precisely. It was the latter. It was uh, when I was a second grader, I was given a mythology you know, book uh, of Greek myths, and I was very lucky. I grew up in Scranton, Pennsylvania, where there's a Jesuit high school that had four years of Latin and three of Greek uh, on offer, which I took, and I took three years of German as well in high school. And um, then I just kept on doing classics. I mean, and I always came from the classical philology um, point of view. I thought I was going to be a literary person. And I really, very late, it was only in graduate school that I 
decided to become an ancient historian. Um, and this is after a first degree in the United States and then going mm-hmm. for a second undergraduate degree at Oxford and then returning okay. to the United States. It was only then I decided to become an ancient historian. And then the coin, again, the, I knew nothing at that point, I'd say when I was, you know, 27 years old uh, and deep into my dissertation, I still at that point had no formal training in the coins and the, the, the sort of the uh, loosest grasp on the Roman Republican coinage. But under the tutelage of my director, Ernst Badian, uh, I w- learned I had to get up to speed pretty pretty quickly. And then it became absolutely essential. And, and I'd say since the last 32 years, it's been really a, a central point of my, my work, including I've done an article on Cappadocian coinage, um, oh. uh, on ancient Cappadocian coinage, again, f- f- for, for chronology um, uh, and, and the like. And my latest sort of... I can use the word obsession or papal medals. Uh, I'm really, really interested in, you know, from Renaissance. Okay, well, how, how did that happen? Uh, <laughs> you, know, I, you don't hear that too often. So. Oh, no, no. I Again, I, <laughs> I, I decided I was going to teach a course I, at Rutgers. I have a lot of latitude. And I thought as a continuation of my interest in the Roman Empire, I was going to teach a course on history of the popes because there I saw so many, for two reasons. One is because there's a lot of, continuity between uh, Rome's ancient uh, emperors and the Vatican. Um, but the second is also the urban, I'm interested in the history of the city of Rome, and you can't get very far without uh, looking at the papal interventions. And uh, so I decided to teach an entire online 32-hour course on the history of the popes. And it was actually mostly filmed in Rome uh, itself. I was able to get a grant, and it was an online on-site course. But to give it continuity, it was all through the papal medals. Um, and um, that was the defining sort of thread uh, in order to get us from the year 1500 up to the present second. And I, I, um, uh, when I put together the course the first time, it was Francis's uh, first papal medal had just come out in 2013, and it had a typo on it. And only four oh, no. were sold inadvertently. I don't know if you remember this, and it had to be removed. Uh, they misspelled <laughs> Jesus. If you're going to misspell... <laughs> If you're, going to, if you're going to misspell a, a, a word on a, a papal coin, but they spelled it Jesus, L-E-S-U-S, and uh, four of them made it to the Vatican gift shop. And then a, I oh think, my gosh. I may be misremembering this. This is this is eight years ago. But a uh, one of the tourists brought the coin back and said, listen, I want to get a refund. Mine has a typo on it. And oh, no. uh, uh, so they pulled the whole, the whole coinage. But it was actually, it was... Um, it was a, a, a great way to end uh, this sort of uh, 500 plus year uh, history of the uh, of papal medals with this typo. Wow. Do you uh, do you collect it all? I mean, especially with the papal medals, uh, I'm, I'm guessing that those might be a little easier to get your hands on. Do you do you have any specimens kind of hanging around? No, I have. I, I maybe own two or three ancient coins that were given to mm-hmm. me. Ernst Badian had given me when I finished my dissertation, for example. And then when I finished my book yeah. on. Uh, no, I finished an article on uh, the reign of the Emperor Hadrian. He gave me a Hadrianic coin, but I don't collect them. I mean, basically, mm-hmm. uh, my most prized coin, though, is an 1849 large cent with the Liberty Head, which I got out of a New Jersey transit vending machine. No kidding. Ticket, yeah, when my change came in, <laughs> this large cent came out, and that is by in, in pretty good condition, you know, oh BG plus at a minimum. And uh, uh, that's my most treasured coin. What is it doing in the machine? I That's have no amazing. idea. 
but it, it came out and I've never been, I've never been so happy. Uh, I really felt like I won the lottery. Yeah. Um, listen to everyone listening at home. You check your change um, all the time. This, <laughs> that's incredible. There's, there's a few things, but I'm, I'm actually very ignorant about the market in particular. And for example, when I finished yeah. my fascist book, I, I, I said, well, as a, as a treat to myself, I'm going to buy a uh, 1916 Denver Mint uh, uh, Mercury Dime, uh, which I knew was basically the, the most prized of the series. Thinking it would, I don't know what, what I thought, how much it was cost. But when I saw that they were going for $50,000 on auction, I completely changed my mind. It was a, yeah, uh, you can, you can yeah. buy yourself a pretty nice Gibson for that. You know, <laughs> there's many things I could buy for 50,000. And yeah. And so basically, but I'm, I'm very, but the one, when I have looked at, at, uh, you're right though, about papal medals is that even the ones which I consider like really historically crucial ones, um, are not, you know, t- terribly, terribly expensive. And I'm also interested in the use of papal medals. Uh, basically, uh, when people, uh, I've done a sort of informal study of when uh, people drill holes through them uh, and basically wear them as lockets. And uh, it seems to be the ones where the Pope is giving the papal blessing on the obverse. That seems to be uh, something that, oh, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, that prompts people. There's like, it's not huh. universal, but basically. But the the medals, and if I if I did collect, I would collect Renaissance medals. I, I would just go mm-hmm. straight straight for the source. All right, <laughs> or, or so than ancient um, coins. I love ancient yeah. coins, but basically, Re- Renaissance medals is what I would collect. That's that's where it's at. That's <laughs> that's terrific. Um, I want to I want to talk about music for a moment, uh, but more specifically about the intersection of uh, juggling what must have been a massive academic workload with a successful early career as a recording artist. Um, now, I was wondering if you were able to find a balance uh, between the two, and ultimately, did you have to make a choice between a career as a professional musician or going the route of classics? No, it was completely insane. I mean, basically, <laughs> I, I, no. First of all, there was really no balance. I mean, it was like lighting a candle at both ends and sticking a wick in the middle and lighting that as well. I mean, I, I was able to sustain it for about three years because okay. the one thing is I never stopped being a student or teach. I've never been off a college campus since 1977. Um, wow. And so I never quit doing what I was doing or took time off or a gap year or any of this stuff. I just continued. I was doing both at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so writing the dissertation with Ernst Badian and performing in the Lemonheads, which was complete, you know, the, it happened at the same time. Um, it was really, really difficult. And when I got a, uh, my first job, which was at Bryn Mawr College, it was a two-year visiting position. And then I, I stayed tenure, it turned into a tenure track, uh, quite fortunately. Um, but when I got that job, I pretty much retired from the Lemonheads, but I still joined them for one last tour, a European tour in summer mm-hmm. of 1991. And then I realized it had, um, really had, it had really sort of changed. I don't know how to describe it. The um, I did two records with uh, the Lemonheads, one on uh, uh, an independent label called Tang, and the other one was on Atlantic, the major label. And yeah. it things really, uh, I mean, it was it, it was great from a you know sort of financial point of view for the guys in the band, um, you know, to be on the major label. But there was something there was something really lost. I don't know how to describe it. It was much I much preferred the, the punk rock indie era. Um, right. Than, well, and working for a label as their, their employee. No, exactly. I mean, I had a chance uh, before our conversation to go back and find on YouTube some some old tracks from Bullet LaVolta or, uh, you know, there's some they have your 1988 
demo tape of Super Fidazione um, on there, which is just great. And so listening to the punk and the hardcore, and then, and then yeah, that ha- having having that and, and being on smaller labels or self producing versus you know getting signed by Atlantic, uh, I can only imagine you know how you know, you just lost that DIY essence and that that kind of urgency, or it's a different kind of urgency, I suppose, um, of making the music versus urgency of, of trying not to suck <laughs> you know, when you've got, a, got all this money getting thrown at you. Yeah, we, we have a tradition in my family of uh, musicians who quit. I mean, who basically <laughs> are, and um, one is my, I had a great uncle who was a famous composer. His name is Clay Boland. And he wrote a jazz standard called Gypsy in My Soul. And uh, uh, he uh, decided, in fact, actually become a dentist instead. I mean, he, he, uh, he, wow. yeah, rather than a full-time songwriter. So he basically wow. became a dentist. My father, um, was a very gifted trumpet, uh, trumpeter, a jazz trumpeter in the 1950s. And, um, he tells the story that he, uh, turned down an invitation to play with the Claude, Thun- the Claude Thornhill orchestra. And if, if you're a big band jazz person, Claude Thornhill is the gold standard. And um, uh, and he was in the military and then was a secondary school teacher. And so basically, uh, I'm continuing the tradition um, by uh, it was actually had I stayed with the Lemonheads, it was getting really exciting. I mean, basically, um, I turned down an opportunity to go to Australia on a tour and mm-hmm. met the band in Sweden. And then we worked our way from Sweden through the low countries and, and elsewhere in Europe. And it was, um, but then I left, but then the band went to Brazil and they went, to, I mean, there's, they, they played in Vietnam. I mean, there's, there's, wow. there's a million wow. different, but also the other thing is their next three albums went gold um, after I left. And I often say that uh, uh, my, um, my departure was not, co- <laughs> and, and, their, and their commercial success was not coincidental. All right. You know, so you, I mean, you're listening to shame about Ray and Mrs. Robinson and stuff and, and yeah, it's, it's got that different kind of <laughs> different kind of vibe and, you know, hearing you on guitar with, with this kind of, you know, this shredding um, and this kind of acrobatics. Yeah. It, it, it turned into a new <laughs> sound, I guess. Um, it, it was very clear that uh, I was not the vehicle <laughs> for, their, for their commercial success. And also um, Evan Dando at that time, I mean, it was, he was the, the lead singer and is the lead singer and guitarist of, of the Lemonheads had made a really, really important collaboration in Australia uh, mm. with uh, some songwriters there. And um, so the band, because of this visit to Australia that I skipped out on uh, the band went into, a, you know, very much a different direction and um, yeah. uh, which is fine. I mean, it's like, it's not just fine. It's incredible. It was like much better than anything I could have produced. When the when you were when you were on tour, um, were you also you know kind of picking up local currencies, or did you have any kind of numismatic thread, or or were you just you know focused on you know the next show and the next stop? A combination. I remember uh, basically it, there were some inscriptions when we were in Germany. I was able to look at. Um, oh yeah, the, that's right. Yeah, yeah. but it, it's a um, but I didn't do anything sort of particularly coin coin related, um, mm-hmm. and but this was also the very early. Uh, period when I sort of became just aware of numismatics. This is like late eighties, early nineties. Sure. And sure. if I were touring with them now, it'd be a different, uh, a different story. Um, oh, yeah. But it was also it depending. You know, I had zero. A few things was one is I had zero taste for the U- U.S. touring, which seemed to be tremendous distances to play small clubs in front of not very many people. Whereas mm-hmm. if you're touring in the Ruhr Valley and basically 
have a major city every 30 minutes and completely different clubs and completely different crowds. Uh, that was the life as far as I was concerned. I mean, that was like the greatest place to tour imaginable uh, it was in, in, in Germany, but also pretty much um, any place on the continent. Oh, sure. You know, and, and, you know, when you're touring there, I mean, the Romans were there first. And so there's going to be all kinds of stuff for you to drop in on. Um, I, I can imagine. Um, and I'm also wondering if you, if you were taking your books and your papers with you, you know, on tour, this is of course, pre-internet. So did you, were you doing research in between stops or I, I must have been did doing you kind some, of put everything on hold? I yeah. must've been doing some writing, but I remember, mm-hmm. um, basically I'm uh, the, Mostly, it was just hanging out with the with the guys in the band, even on yeah. the very very long rides. I mean, the the, the people who were on these tours in 1989 was Bolt Lavolta and the Lemonheads toured together, and oh. I love the guys in both those bands. I absolutely love them. It was the most fun time imaginable. But I remember uh, riding across the old East Germany, uh, and we had five or six hours to get to wet, the old West Berlin, and we're basically in the bus, and we had this conversation heated argument with with the with the bass player who's now deceased in Bolt LaVolta saying that this is 1989 the future there's not going to be any record stores people are going to he didn't use the word download but they're going to have computer files that they're going to be be downloaded from some sort of source onto personal computers and they're going to listen to music that way and I got into this violent argument. That's the <laughs> stupidest thing I've ever heard. I said, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, I because re- I could tell you almost precisely the date that was. But th- that was these are the types of conversations I remember. But I was I remember getting like saying this is the crazy. You know, I thought it was the most ridiculous. However, if he was really prescient, as a friend told me, uh, basically he would have predicted not just the demise of record stores, but then the comeback of vinyl. One of my favorite places on the entire planet is the Princeton Record Exchange. Um, I absolutely adore that store. And and yeah, the resurgence of vinyls kind of kept that place alive. There has not been a resurgence of 78s, though, I'll tell you that. I'm, I've been lugging around boxes of no. 78s, and that's it, that, that's not coming back. So it's a, uh, I've been waiting, and I think it may be time to divest. We'll be right back after a word from the ANS. The Planchet is a product of the American Numismatic Society. The best way to support this podcast is join as a member. Since 1858, we have cultivated a community of scholars, artists, collectors, and amateur enthusiasts interested in numismatics and the tangible history these objects describe. Go to numismatics.org membership. That is numismatics with an S dot O-R-G slash membership to see options and prices. So, you know, we're, we're, we're dipping back, in, back into the past with uh, past media and talking about future media. And this leads me to my next question, which was, uh, you know, your work as a classics professor, you know, it's bridged the divide between pre-internet research. You, um, you and I both have used the paper version of L'année Philologique mm. uh, or Byzantinus as a Zeitschrift or something like this. And, and now it seems like you can find almost anything you want for books, for articles online. And, and I'm curious if you've noticed changes in how you research and write. And if you've noticed trends in how your students research and write over the past 30 or so years. Oh, this is an excellent question. And it's, first of all, I mean, with the invention of the personal, there, there's been an arc. With the, if you look at the paper Lane Philologique on the shelf, you can see when the, the, the advent of the personal computer, because the, <laughs> the volumes start getting very, very thick. And yeah. um, uh, I mean, around 1984, 1985, and then it becomes ridiculous. I mean, there's an explosion of uh, of work so keeping there was a time when you know in the 80s that you could just about control the bibliography on a subject but those days are both it's both easier and harder now i mean it's it's harder because yeah. there's so much more 
stuff, but it's easier because of the digital revolution. Um, but I'm, it's a bit, the pandemic actually was a bit, it was scary in many, many regards and deadly serious. Uh, but one thing that I realized is how digital I've become. I was able to do the Fasci's book pretty much, uh, first of all, it was serendipity because in 2019, I had an incredible opportunity to go to Rome uh, at the American Academy in Rome as a resident. Mm -hmm. And I was able to do what I considered all the research uh, that I really needed to do um, to write this book. Um, and about telling with my storyline. And um, But then the pandemic hit and I didn't step physically into a library for two years. And I was, it was a bit perturbing to see how well I did with, of course, using library resources, like the digital. And at one point I had a call um, the art history librarian at uh, Rutgers and beg her to look at a physical item for me on the shelf. But um, mm -hmm. uh, other than that, I was able to complete the book for better or worse uh, without stepping into a library. And still in my hometown of Princeton, New Jersey, um, visitors aren't um, allowed back in. So I haven't been in that structure, Firestone Library, since um, wow, fall of 2019. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Wow, and and um, you know, as far as uh, your students are concerned, um, it, is it kind of an attitude of like, oh, these kids today, uh, or are, are they actually you know leveraging the power of the internet to do some really exciting work compared to what they might have been able to do, you know, by going to the card file? Oh, I think it's amazing. I mean, I my most I teach. I have two different types of teaching in a way at Rutgers. One is teaching very, very large classes, um, uh, 275 students, 300 students, Roman civilization, Greek and Roman athletics, et cetera. And there's a writing component um, to this course. And I would say that I would be surprised if I received 300 papers and uh, anyone has checked a physical book. <laughs> That's just the way it goes. <laughs> but, uh, wow. but, but it's still yeah. it's very high end, but it's, I'm surprised when I see students actually go to the library and take the physical book off the shelf. Um, on the other hand, I work with a small under, with undergraduate research group in, and uh, also interns because I manage an archive in Rome. It's called the Archivio Bon Compagni Ludovisi. And it sort of it explains why I'm interested in the popes to a certain extent. It's uh, the family of Gregory Thirteenth, who founded the Gregorian calendar and Gregory XV, uh, Ludovisi, who canonized the first Jesuit popes. So I feel already attached to this family even before I had met them, but basically for historical reasons. But um, I managed their private archive in Rome and we've digitized everything with Rutgers help. And um, I have an internship group and a student research group that works on it. And these students are absolutely phenomenal. I probably had three dozen that have passed through, but it's very, very intense one-on-one -on -one work. Um, and, um, these, and these students use every research um, you know, at tool at one's disposal, whether it's digital analog or, or the like uh, to get to the bottom of things, plus a lot of serendipity. Yes. Uh, serendipity is amazing. And, and, you know, that, that reminds me of, you know, my, my own time in the libraries is, is just the fact that you're looking for one book and then next to it is something that's really cool. And you're like, I'm going to take this book and the one next to it, we're going to find out what this is all about. And, you know, I, I do miss that kind of kismet, you know, this, mm. this kind of intellectual or academic kismet where you know, it's, stuff just kind of shows up when it shows up and it always seems to be right on time. Oh, I know. I know. This is this is one something like the American Numismatic Society Library. Uh, some, I mean, the smaller, really highly curated libraries are, are 
perfect examples for this where yeah, you, yeah. you'll see the volume, you know, next to the one that you've been looking for, uh, basically, um, uh, is uh, almost guaranteed to be mind blowing about, you know, X number of times. <laughs> Yeah, then you're like, oh man, yeah, I, I didn't budget the time for this, and and here it is. Um, but the digital revolution has made a real yeah. difference in numismatics. I mean, I think in several important regards. One of it is the images, the quality of the images are so much better. Mm. I yes. dare anyone to look at the plates in, I mean, in many of the great sort of, I'm thinking the Roman world uh, numismatic uh, collections, and be able to like discern what's going on in these coins, and. Um, uh, so, so looking at the ANS online, the British Museum um, uh, online, and you know many many others, and to see what the coins actually look like, this is like you know, and the standard for for coin illustration has just gone way way up. And also for my teaching, I'll say that there was, uh, without going too much, well, I, I'll I'll go into it. Is that basically the old days of calling the American Numismatic Society and basically this is in the 90s presenting having them photograph the coins for you and then yeah. somehow get the slides in within a year's time uh basically that was uh something I do not <laughs> ever want to revisit <laughs> yeah it was a it was the most they were the most beautiful the American Numismatic Society had the greatest photographer of coins that had ever lived his name was Franz and uh, they were, the, the photographs were unbelievably beautiful. However, though, the whole bureaucratic process in order to get those slides um, uh, was sometimes pretty daunting. And those days I don't miss. Right. And now it's just, uh, you know, the touch of a button. And, and uh, yeah, our, our, our workflow has certainly increased and, and operating in strictly 100% digital environment now has really, you know, helped move things along a pace. And we're actually... Um, starting to investigate the use of laser scanning or LIDAR um, mm. on the coins to do super high, definition, super high definition, high resolution coin images that are in three dimensions so that you can mm. just zoom in and see all kinds of things that you, you would have missed. Even if you're just, if, if you had the thing in your hand, you wouldn't be able to see some of this stuff. So it's absolutely incredible what we'll be able to do, you know, with, uh, with, with the current technology. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Next time you find yourself in New York, come to the ANS and, and see what we're cooking up. <laughs> we had a digital experiment that went for two decades at Rutgers is that we were very lucky that Ernst Badian gave us his coin collection. And it is one of the great private collections of Roman Republican coins, 1,270 examples. Uh, and um, we, of course, immediately wanted to digitize took so long to figure out how to do it because first of mm -hmm. all in the early 2000s uh that was not the technology just st st still wasn't there um and then we made another push around 2018 when we actually did most of the coins but we made seven photographs of each because we basically did them from um we did the uh from angles and even the side um uh, of the coin it was very 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 labor intensive but um uh, the files are massive and you can sort of zoom in on, you know, uh, incredible details. And, it, and and this is how people are using the site because the uh, usage numbers really, really surprised me. I mean, I, far beyond what I would have thought. No, it's, no, it's true. We're able to keep, to uh, record those kinds of analytics as well. And yeah, we're, we're finding that the usage is just through the roof, specifically on the Roman coinage that we have, uh, mm. online coinage of the Roman Empire or Ochre, seems mm. to get the most 
international visitors. Um, and yeah, the, the stuff is absolutely getting used. So I'm, I'm glad that you're finding similar, you know, even with the older uh, digitization project at Rutgers, um, it's uh, no, it's, it's, it's just a bit incredible. And, and uh, as a publisher, I'm always trying to think of ways that we can integrate this, this, these digital things, you know, into, uh, you know, the knowledge production. Um, and I, I suppose my last question is, is, you know, you're using primary sources, you're using coins, you're writing synthetic text, you're working with, with images and inscriptions and the like. Um, maybe you could forecast a little bit about, you know, the future of publication in classics or classics that's informed with numismatics. Where do you see things going or do you think that things are going to change much beyond the printed page for monographs, for example? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I have a, um, uh, my next book is on the Villa Ludovisi in Rome. And uh, it's, there's be a numismatic uh, element as well. And um, however, to print this book, the subsidy required, which I obtained, uh, however, though, is I'm not even going to, it's jaw dropping how, what it takes to produce a quality book with, um, yeah. uh, with illustrations. And Again, you know, what would be the print run for such a book? 300, uh, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And so there's, there's a lot of questions about um, sort of standard book publishing. And, um, but really the question of subsidies, if you want to illustrate anything at any, at any level. So we'll see, you know, we'll see how it goes. I mean, I personally don't like reading ebooks. I don't, I'd much rather have a book in my hand than on a screen. Um, I would be outraged if my latest book only appeared, you know, in, it goes to show how dyed in the wool I am. Um, yeah. but it would really make a appreciable difference to me if my book was went straight to ebook and uh, there was no physical copy that one could actually buy. So I think that the technology of books has never been bettered. I mean, there's, it's the ultimate, uh, um, uh, but paying for it and what type of market there is and, um, there's, there's really the 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 days of having a seven or ten volume sort of corpus of you know uh, coins or whatever in a printed form. I can't imagine how much it would cost. I mean, it'd be um, I just I just can't imagine. No, it's it, it is beyond imagining. I mean, the publishers, you know, for example, like Spink with the Roman Imperial coinage, they continue to do the series, and I can only imagine, you know, the the kind of money that gets sunk into uh, into those. Volumes. I mean, they're immaculately produced, uh, well-researched, gigantic things. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's astronomical how much things are costing these days. I bought a whole stack of numismatic books just recently, and I because I'm very aware of the price. Is my my son, um, who's just graduated from the University of Edinburgh, his senior thesis was on um, hard luck uh, tokens of the oh, wow. Uh, wow, wow. 1837 and beyond, and uh, there was a few. Uh, volumes that could not be gotten in the UK and only really could be gotten in the United States. And so I, I laid out just for my hard luck tokens books. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's daunting. That's all I can say. I mean, there's, there's going to be always a niche, I, I think, but uh, um, we'll see how it goes. Um, it's, I'll just leave it at that. I'm not quite sure which, which direction things are going, but I'm, unfortunately, I'm not ready to give up on uh, the printed text yet. Yeah, and uh, no, I, I think that's a good thing. Speaking as a publisher, yeah, I, I still want the physical copy. We can have the e-copy, but physical copy as well. Mm. Um, so, Corey, I want to thank you very much for taking the time 
you know, this has been a delightful 45 minute conversation that we've just had uh, wide ranging and, and it's just been a treat. So thank you very, very much for agreeing to join us here on the planchet today. Oh, thank you, Andrew. This has been a, a, a joy. And um, really? uh, what can I say? It's, I've never been <laughs> asked this series of questions before ever. I've never been asked about coins and about my rock is sort of past and never in combination with each other. So this has been a totally novel. <laughs> uh, happy, happy to oblige. We'll do it again sometime. Oh, thank you so, so much. Excellent. Okay. Thank you.